0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. Of course, we gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both in person and online. In person, uh, we have prayer, worship through song. We have the study of God's Word. We take communion together. We have kids church. Online, of course, we're here every Sunday morning uh, via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our Facebook page, our website, faithonhill.com. And then... uh, While we gather together on Sunday mornings, we scatter out throughout the week, and we have small groups. You know, it used to be churches would do uh, one or two meetings in the week. They used to call it a midweek service, and that was it. You'd have Sunday mornings, and you'd have the midweek you know, with schedules, life, everything that is the way it is these days, we found it's instead of having one time that maybe some people could make, but maybe a lot of other people couldn't, we have multiple times that we meet throughout the week. And you can email small groups at faithonhill.com for more information. We have our online Wednesday night small group. Uh, all of these are starting back up after the summer break. We have our Sunday morning small group. We have our uh, Tuesday night young adults group. And we're starting a new small group uh, in the fall and we're still figuring out, is it going to be Sunday night or it'll be Friday night? We're, we're not quite sure. But you can email small groups at faithonhill.com for more information. We also have youth group that meets on uh, Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. here at the church. And that's kind of the general scope of the week. Now, in place of the midweek service, we do have podcasts like our 20-minute Bible study. Uh, our Starting Points podcast, which is an overview of books of the Bible. It's meant to start or restart your study of God's Word, and our once-a-month long-form Talk About Anything podcast. And you can find those the same place that you find this online service. We're going to continue our study this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. But I did want to, on a personal note, just say thank you to the church for letting my wife and my family and I uh, go on vacation for a couple of weeks. We camped in the high desert in central Oregon, uh, endured a lot, had a lot of fun. We also had a day where we had uh, three thunder and lightning events in one day um, and and, uh, memorable times. And then we came back for a day or two, then went camping again up in Washington and then got rid of the kids, my parents, for a couple of days. And Angie and I spent some time up in the San Juan Islands, came back recharged, refreshed, excited for the the fall and the new season that's coming. So if you have a Bible, let's open to the Gospel of Matthew and see what Jesus has to say to his church. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you are changed and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And if you've ever been on the Bob's Red Mill tour, uh, then you've seen what a large millstone looks like. Jesus is making a point, and he wants them to know how seriously he takes this. Woe to the world, verse 7, because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise the little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven... Always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hill and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine who did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones... Should perish. This is God's word to us. So the disciples come to Jesus and they have this question Who is the greatest? And this question gets asked all the time to this day. It's been asked all throughout human history, both inside the church and outside the church. Who's the greatest? Who's the goat? Is it Brady or Montana? Is it Jordan or is it LeBron? I, I've been told I use too many sports metaphors, but they work, right? But we have these discussions about who's the greatest, who's the best. Uh, every four years, we go to the polls and we say, who's the best? Which is the one that, that is the greatest idea, philosophy, candidate? within the church, these arguments happen. You know, oh, Billy Graham's the greatest Christian of all time. No, it was Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher to have ever lived. Or no, it was St. Augustine and his important influence on theology. Or no, it was the Apostle Paul. Or it was Peter or John or one of the other apostles. Or somebody else says, no, it's a Christian you've never heard of. That's the greatest of all time. And if it's not people, maybe it's denominations. You know, I think the Pacific Conference, that's our family of churches, they're the best. Or no, I think the Baptists are the best. Or no, I think the the Pentecostals are the best. Or I think Calvary Chapel's the best. Or I think non-denominational churches are the way to go. We have all of these ways that we fight about who is the greatest. And maybe it's not denominations, maybe it's demographics. The young people should have the priority. They are the most important No, it's the older people. They should be honored and respected and they should get the way that they want it. And then when the younger people get old, they can have it the way that they want it. We argue about who's the greatest. I appreciate, by the way, that Jesus does not ignore this question. I appreciate that Jesus answers this question and deals with it head on. There are many stories that I've heard of people who've come to church with questions with questions, and they're told, no, don't ask questions. Even silly ones like, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think questions should be allowed and encouraged. Also, there are all kinds of fights and pettiness, and so what sometimes people try to do is they'll say, let's not argue about this, let's ignore it, let's try to sweep it all under the rug. But all of the same issues are there. Jesus could have said, don't argue about who the greatest is, and moved on. And all of the same rivalries and insecurities and positioning among the 12 disciples would have still existed. So he deals with it head on so that they aren't just left in their their fighting amongst each other, but they can grow from this. Again, this question is always being asked. What's Jesus's answer? Well, he doesn't just start making a list. Number one, Peter. Number two, James. Number three, John. So on, so on. You know, uh, Thomas and Judas. You're at the bottom, right? Like he doesn't make a list of a ranking of the twelve from one to twelve. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? He goes and he grabs a little child and he puts it center among the disciples. Now we don't know where this child came from. Is Jesus at somebody's home? Maybe they have traveled somewhere, and they're staying in somebody's home, and they're maybe having dinner, or it's after dinner, and the disciples ask this question. It's post-dinner conversation, and there's a little child kind of playing on the side of the room, and Jesus gets up, and he, he just picks up the child. Maybe it's a little toddler. Uh, maybe it's a baby that's being held by his mother, and he, he goes over to the mother and says, can I hold your baby for a minute? And she says, of course. And so she hands the baby to Jesus. And, and, and in their culture, the, the rabbi, the master, holding the child, uh, maybe he'll uh, bless it. There, there's a lot of excitement about this. What, what, however old the child is or whatever reason, they're there. He goes and takes the child and brings it central among the disciples. Everyone can see this child. And what is it he says? He says, unless you are changed and become like little children, you won't even enter the kingdom. So he's not even talking about being the greatest. He says, you got to get into the kingdom of heaven and you have to be changed to become like little children. The word changed, by the way, is the same that we would talk about being transformed or converted It's the same idea as becoming a Christian that we convert, we change, we repent. We were going one way, and now we are going the complete 180-degree opposite direction. You have to be a totally different person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, who are the little ones? That's the obvious question. If I have to be changed to be like one of the little ones, what is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about a baby or a toddler? Is this a metaphor? Because he doesn't say changed into a toddler. Like There's not some like weird Jesus magic that happens that all of a sudden you de-age. Is he talking metaphorically? He says you have to become like one of these little ones. What I have found is instead of saying this is exactly what Jesus means, what I prefer and I think is the way to go is to run down all of the possibilities. If he just means the humility of a child. In their culture, in their culture, children were on the lowest end of the social spectrum, right? They had a social order. They had a a pecking order of who had importance in society. And in their society, where slavery sadly was common, a slave was higher up on the order than a child. So Jesus takes the lowliest position in their society, the child, and he says, you need to become like this little one. So it could be that we could apply a bunch of things. The young, the outsider, the overlooked, the humble. The, those who don't seem to have much, those who are lowly. This idea of, of the, the little one could mean a lot of different things depending on the situation. And instead of trying to pick one, I just say, let's run with all of them. Now, Jesus says, hey, you, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become humble like this little child. Why? Because it takes humility to say that I need God. It takes humility to say that the way I was going isn't working, and I'm going to go the opposite way. The way that I was going, following my own path, following the ways of this world, just leading me to destruction. And so I'm going to turn around, I'm going to be changed, and I am going to go the way of Jesus. That takes humility Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, we just studied it a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Matthew, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And where was Jesus going? He himself was denying himself and was taking up the cross, and he was going where the Father was leading him, to the hill of Calvary where he would be crucified. You want to know who the little ones are They're they're representative of the change, the the humiliation in a good way that we need to have to repent of our sins and surrender our lives to God. Now, then Jesus makes a shift because at first he's using the little ones as an analogy of saying, instead of seeking to be the greatest, why don't you seek to be the lowest. Why, instead of seeking to build yourself up, why don't you humble yourself? And then he shifts and he begins speaking of those who would harm the little ones. He uses the word stumble, the little ones. Why would he use that word? Why, why would he start talking about this? If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be thrown into the sea. If you want to know how important the little ones are to Jesus, look here at verse 6. He takes it very seriously. Now, he literally could be talking about the young ones, the children. And there are those who have caused the youth, the young, the child to stumble. Those who are abusers and harmers. Those who Maybe there's somebody young growing up in the church, and they believe in God, but they, their belief is tripped up. It's stumbled. It's, it, the waters are muddied. Things are messed with because maybe they had an abusive church upbringing or a toxic church upbringing. Or, or maybe, um, you know, they had questions, and instead of, instead of working through and answering questions that just were told to shut up, Maybe, you know, they came along and as their generation of the church came of age and said, hey, we're here. We want to be part of the church. And they were told by the older generation, no, wait your turn. This is my church, not yours. I think it could mean all of those things and more. But Jesus takes the stumbling of the little ones so seriously. In the book of Leviticus, there is a verse that talks about not causing the blind to stumble. And what it means is basically, it, you have a, the, the community had a responsibility. If there was somebody in the community who was blind, the community had a responsibility so that like the, the general, like, if there was like one main path through the village, hey, make sure that that path isn't full of stones and rocks that would cause them to trip. Make sure that they can get from their house to the synagogue. Make sure that they can get from their house to the, to the baker. Make sure that they can, can live and, and thrive as best as possible, given the situation. The, the God, in his law, in the book of Leviticus, actually set up this ordinance that was like a, hey, make sure they're taken care of. I believe the same thing is true in the church. That as much as possible, we have a responsibility We have a responsibility to make smooth the path of the next generation. Make smooth the path of new believers. And and there are people that come into the church and they just want Jesus and they know that they have sins and they know that Jesus will forgive their sins. But the path in is not smooth because maybe there's an, uh, you know, you need to not just believe in Jesus, but you need to behave or dress or talk the way that we do you need to vote the way that we do. You need to be interested in the in the hobbies that we're interested in. I've seen this kind of thing happen in churches. Somebody just wants to find Jesus. But the path isn't smooth and it's full of stones and 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 roots and things that would trip somebody up. Jesus says, "Don't do that." Jesus takes that so seriously who's the greatest? Jesus says it's those who are like the little ones. But then he shifts and he says, by the way, the little ones are there. But woe to those who cause them hurt, who cause them to lose their way. He says there's going to be stumbling. Why? Because we're in a world full of sin. We are in a world full of sin. And there are going to be abusers and there are going to be people who are predators on and victimize people, but woe to them who do it and woe to the church who allows it. It's one thing if sin happens and it's found out and it's dealt with. It's another when a church allows it to happen. It's another when a church sweeps things under the rug for whatever reason and then that abuse or that hurt or that toxicity or that bullying or whatever is allowed to continue. Because the little ones are so important to Jesus. They're so important to Jesus. So what's the solution? If, if the only way to be great in the kingdom of God is to be like a little one, and, and, if, and, and if there's also this command to protect the little ones, what's the solution? I think the solution is Twofold. Focus forward and focus outward. Focus forward and focus outward. What does that look like? Well, let me speak first to those who are Christians, and then I'll speak to those who might not be Christians in a minute. But for those of us who are believers, for those of us who say, yes, I believe that I am part of God's family. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. I've been changed. I believe the answer to us is to focus forward. I'm getting older. I mean, no old person thinks I'm old, right? I'm in my 40s, you know, but no older person thinks I'm old. But, you know, on the flip side, no young person thinks I'm young. No truly young person believes that I'm young. And as I get older, I like the way things are that I like them to be. I'm at the place in my life where I'm annoyed that they aren't making music the way that I used to like music to be made. I'm at, I, I'm at the place in my life where, you know, those kids need to turn it down and all that stuff, right? That happens to all of us. I can choose to seek myself to say that me or my generation or my preferences are the greatest, or I can focus forward and say, how can I make the path smooth for new believers who come in outside of church culture, for younger people in the church, our youth group, our kids' church, as they grow up, how do I make the path smooth? That's forward focused and focused outward. You know what? Everyone's allowed to have their opinions. Everyone is. I saw a post this morning on social media, a friend of mine who is a politically liberal or progressive person, and they said, hey, if you're a Christian and you believe this political thing, you're wrong. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, actually, I agree with you on this point, but I don't think anybody who disagrees with you is being unchristian. You see, I grew up in a very politically conservative church, and if you were, had any point of view that wasn't in line with that conservative politics, you had to be quiet. But now what my progressive friend is wanting is that all Christians need to be in line with their progressive point of view. I don't think either's right. What if somebody comes in outside the church and the church is full of people uh, who believe in limited government? I'm just going to throw this out there. Let's let's say it's limited government, but they don't. They actually kind of like socialism. Are we going to make the path smooth for them? Let's say that the church is full of people who believe in in gun control. And somebody comes into the church that just genuinely wants Jesus, but they also like to go hunting and they don't believe in gun control. Would we make the path smooth for them? Or would we say, I'm sorry, you need to go find a different church because you don't hold our view. And I'm just picking examples out in random. I'm not trying to like specify any person or any group or any church. What I'm saying is this. How can we make the path smooth for the young? Forward focus. How can we make the path smooth for the outsider coming in? Outward focus. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Humble yourself. Become like one of the little ones. Serve others. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. I do kind of suspect that the greatest Christian who's ever lived is somebody we've never heard of. I do kind of suspect that. Uh, The reason is when when Jesus was asked about who's the greatest ever in human history, he said, John the Baptist. Of anyone who's ever lived up to this point, it's John the Baptist. And of course, no historian would agree with Jesus. They'd all say Jesus was wrong. I say whatever Jesus says goes. But it tells me that God sees the world very differently. So what do we do with all this? If you're a Christian... If you've already been changed, then the answer is to be forward-focused and outward-focused and make the path smooth. If you're not a Christian, and there are people who go to church who don't know if they're Christians, there are people who go to church and have gone to church for a while, and the question keeps coming back, do you really want Jesus? The answer for anyone is to be changed. What happens is sometimes churches call people to follow Jesus and to live like a Christian, but they've not been changed. And so then they try to live like a Christian and they try to follow the ways of God, but they haven't been changed on the inside. The Bible says in the book of Romans that the person who has not been changed is actually hostile to God and they are incapable, unable to do the will of God. Only the person who has been changed, only the person who has the Spirit of God in them, inside their soul, is the person who has their mind set on life and peace. The invitation to you is this. To enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like one of the little ones. Humble yourself. Admit your need for forgiveness of your sins. Admit that Jesus is Lord. Admit that you have been going your own way. And it hasn't been working. And be changed, not by your strength, but be changed by the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead three days after he was publicly executed. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raises our souls and our spirits from death into the life that God brings us to. Everyone's going to keep arguing about who the greatest is, what the greatest group is, what the greatest philosophy is. And Jesus just says, humble yourself and let me change you. Hey, I know some of the things we talked about today are difficult. For those of us who are Christians and, and are in the church, it can be difficult because what we're talking about is giving up our own preferences and thinking about others. And that's hard because we like things the way we like them. I believe that God not only changed my heart when I became a Christian, but he's still changing my heart. And I want to invite you to pray that God would, through his spirit, continue to change us, fill us with his love, so that we put others first over ourselves. And I know that for people who are outside of the church, they're not believers, this is hard because we're inviting people to totally turn their back on the way they were going and to to humble themselves enough to say, God, I'm yours, I surrender to you. Neither of those things are easy because our pride wants to get in the way. Our self-control, and I mean that in the bad sense of the word, wants to get in the way. But I know this, that Jesus is worth it and wherever he is going is worth it. And he has the power to change us and to save us completely. Wherever you're at, if you call out to him in humility and honesty, I believe he will reach you where you are. And I pray that in the name of Jesus, you would know the goodness of God, the great work of God, the great change of God, and the hope of the coming kingdom of heaven. God bless you. May the grace of God be with you. May the grace of God be evident in your life, in your work, in your home. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that. Amen.